With COVID-19 making face-to-face interactions more difficult, many of the things we took for granted, jobs, meeting friends, and even doctor's appointments have moved online. This online transition has rapidly increased the importance of social media and activism, which has many potential benefits and drawbacks. Here to talk about social media activism and what it can mean for the climate movement going forward is Professor Eric Malin, the Director of the Civic Engagement and Social Change Certificate at Duke and a scholar of democracy and social innovation, among other things. Welcome to Operation Climate, the one-stop shop for environmental issues that matter to Duke and Durham community members. We're a podcast run by Duke University students aiming to inform and empower Duke at large to create lasting change in the fight against climate change and environmental degradation. This season, we're focusing on climate activism and activism in general. Hey everyone, I'm Richard Jagatia with Operation Climate. Um, with me today is Professor Eric Malin. So Professor, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, it's my pleasure to be part of this, what sounds like a really interesting project. Um, I'm on the faculty of the Sanford School of Public Policy and a fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics and uh, teach courses on civic engagement and social change. Uh, I'm a political scientist by training and I'm really interested in how citizens organize to influence public policy. And uh, we were fortunate to be in a class together this uh, this fall, uh, navigating our way through what was the most uh, uh, interesting and challenging semester I've experienced in my 30 years of teaching. And uh, so I'm glad to be doing this with you as well. Of course, we're glad you're here. So at least when I think about social media and activism um, in the climate world, I think of Greta Thunberg, because like, if you look at Greta Thunberg, she rose because all the social media posts when she had school strike for climate. And we can see social media a lot in activism, but nowadays um, there's been a new term that's coined called uh, slacktivism. And I was wondering if you could describe in your words what you think slacktivism is. Yeah, I think the term slacktivism, which is, you know, a little snarky, perhaps, um, it refers to the fact that it's almost too easy uh, for young people, and not only young people, but for citizens in general, to somehow feel like they're doing something by posting something on social media, whether that's, and I'm, I'm not on social media regularly, so a lot of it's uh, things I learned from my own kids and from my students, um, but that it's too easy to post something on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, and that one can be a slacker um, and still feel like they're being a, a, an activist. And I think the, the limitations of that are that by not drawing on some sense of personal or professional sacrifice, right? That is, uh, I'm committed to this. I'm willing to sacrifice something for it. And that sacrifice might just be time. It might just be traveling to a protest. Um, Others in the history of social change, both in the United States and abroad, have sacrificed much more, right? They've sacrificed sometimes their health and safety, sometimes their futures. You think about dissidents who, or you think about the Arab Spring, um, people sacrifice a great deal. And so I think the, the fear about slacktivism is that it makes people feel like they're doing something significant, whereas they may not be. 
yeah, it seems almost as if the motivations are so diluted as if like it's too easy to join. Um, yeah, it, it's, I've always thought of it. Um, I, I, I think this is a, a useful way to think about it, which is that the use of social media for organizing is a necessary but not sufficient condition for social change. And what I mean by that is um, in today's world, it's hard to imagine organizing a social movement without it, given its widespread use. Um, but if you stop there, uh, then it becomes really difficult to achieve goals. And so I think we saw that this summer uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is um, even in the midst of a pandemic, it seemed important and necessary for citizens to do more than simply tweet, but also to show up in the streets, right? And to show up in the streets at a time when um, that was dangerous uh, as protests often can be, but, in, but also dangerous because of the spread of, of COVID-19. So uh, I think that's a good example of it and um, one that many social movements could learn from. Of course. Well, do you think there's any benefits um, that you've seen from the increase of increased presence of social media on activism? Because for me, I think of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, uh, raising $115 million just because they could drive people to make change on social media and donate money. Can you think of anything on the top of your head where it's been used for a beneficial purpose? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I tend to think of more comparative uh, cases, but I, 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 one thing that I really um, uh, always come back to when thinking about social media is the 2011 Egyptian revolution and the use of Twitter, which is what it became called the Twitter revolution. Uh, and in a society in particular where media is so controlled, which we have less so here in the United States, the use of that kind of platform can be transformative. What's interesting, if you look at that in retrospect, is that that revolution did not hold, right? And so it was not enough. And then the ability for people to organize, to vote, to protest, to write became limited, and that revolution collapsed. So um, I think there are important lessons to be taken from that. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about slacktivism is that it takes you so far, but maybe it doesn't take you far enough. So I guess in my own life, it seems like everywhere I see on Instagram or Facebook, I see a black square, at least during the summer, um, or a picture of Earth on Earth Day. And people are saying, like, support the Earth, or in the black square case, like, Black Lives Matter, but that's it. Um, so do you think that these actions that so many people perform, these performative actions per se, do they have any instrumental value towards the goals of movements? Or are they actually harmful? Um, and do they actually prevent the movement from getting what it's supposed to get done? That is the million dollar question. That's what you should write your honors thesis on when you write an honors thesis, Rajab. I mean, I think, I think that uh, it, I, I don't think that we clearly know the answer and, and, but, but the answer depends on whether it's a substitute for something else or an introduction to something else. And empirically, I think it's both, right? I think it's for different kinds of people, it sometimes serves as an introduction uh, and then people get further involved. Um, and then for others, it's all that people do. I do fear, uh, if I really think about it, that if you were to balance those two different ways that it might be treated, that um, 
that the balance may be in giving people a false sense of efficacy. Oh, I've done it. I check it off and there's nothing left to do. But that we can address, right? That we can say to people, okay, look, you've been really active on social media. Now let's, you know, let's assume that by this summer or this fall, uh, we're at a new stage of the pandemic and we're able to interact again more broadly. Um, Let's also use that to march in Washington. Let's also use that to go door to door to convince people of your cause. Um, Let's also, you know, use that to support certain candidates who we believe in. So um, the potential for it is great. The potential for it to be a useful for a useful introduction to social change is great. And the potential for it interfering with social change is great as well. Wow. <laughs> that's a tough, that's a tough. Problem. I know it's, and, and I, you know, there's probably good empirical evidence out there um, that I don't know the details of that would say it's one or the other. But um, there is a term that a political scientist um, coined, um, Eitan Hirsch at Tufts University, and the term he uses is political hobbyism. And he's very critical of people who politics has become a hobby uh, rather than something that they deeply engage in. And so um, I think we should take his observations and advice and move away from it being a hobby and more toward uh, almost, you know, something closer to a vocation. But I think the question we can all ask ourselves is what are we sacrificing to do it? What does it cost us to do it? And again, I'm not talking about putting your life on the line, but a Saturday is a cost, right? Or, uh, you know, a Saturday doing that rather than sleeping late or something. Those costs that we incur are uh, a good gauge of, uh, I think, whether or not these, these kinds of things can be effective. So, of course, this is a climate podcast. So um, as for the climate movement, I feel like we've mentioned this before, but there's a lot to learn from the Black Lives Matter movement, especially this summer, its successes and failures. So the, cl- the climate crisis is not going away. It's definitely getting worse. And we need to do collective action. Um, we need to address this problem. What do you think that the climate movement can learn from these successes and failures uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement? And how do you think it should organize itself to move forward, especially during a pandemic, especially when a time where large gatherings are not going to be happening. Um, and how should we channel social media to achieve all these problems? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, I think one of the most important lessons uh, that the climate movement should learn, and it's not a hopeful one, I'm sorry to say, from the last nine months, is has less to do with Black Lives Matter and more to do with COVID-19, which is what we're facing in this country now is a res- is a rise of right wing populism that um, that fundamentally does not believe in science and technocracy, and that fundamental challenge for the climate movement is one that's going to have to be addressed head on because um, in some way, and, and we know we've seen data on this that people's um, willingness, let's say, to wear a mask, very much dovetails with their belief that human activity is affecting climate. And so um, the obstacles are are significant. And um, I think that what the climate movement needs to do is in some ways what it's done, which is attack this on multiple fronts. Uh, You know, as as, uh, I think you know, I believe that 
in many ways, I think social change comes when we let a thousand flowers bloom. And which means that university students can um, uh, 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 lobby their universities to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, citizens can support candidates who support legislation that will directly address the use of fossil fuels, um, automobile efficiency, and all of the kinds of things that affect climate. Um, and there's a room for protest too. And you know, people will be back in the streets. Uh, in, in some ways, there may be pent up demand for that. So there's no shortage of things that people can do short of protesting at this moment. Um, there's also obviously a lot that can be done through corporate America as climate becomes an issue that citizens care about and might make their consumer choices based on um, what companies are more sensitive to climate change. So uh, I, I think there's a whole variety of things that people can do short of protest that can help this. But the ops don't, let's not underestimate the obstacles because um, of the rise of right-wing populism in the United States and its view of science. Not the most optimistic view, but it's definitely something that we need to address head on. Yeah, um, I, I do think um, I, I agree. And yet I also do think that the wrecking that that there is at least a bit of mainstreaming of concern about climate change and that mainstreaming of concern about climate change, I think, bodes well for the medium term. We're going to ask all our um, interviewees, per se, this final question. What does activism mean to you? Mm. Um, I think activism means um, making politics and making um, your attempts to achieve social change a fundamental part of your life, a fundamental part of your life, which means it's not done from the sofa. It's not done from your bed. It's not done from the chair. Um, and that it can be done in a variety of ways, but that um, in the end, as we emerge from COVID, I think activism needs to, at some point, involve people-to-people -people contact. And that could be knocking on a door. It could be attending a protest. It could be asking a candidate a question. It could be all of those kinds of things that have people confronting other people. And I don't mean confronting in a uh, necessarily a conflictual way. So um, that's what I think it is. And we all struggle to make that happen. But, uh, it, it, you know, the issue that you are doing this podcast on couldn't be more important. And so, you know, sometimes it has to stare at you right in the face. And unfortunately, the fires in the western part of the United States this summer, you know, put in stark uh, appearance to us of, of what the implications of this are. And once it starts affecting people, uh, I, I do think the potential is greater for action on this. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Professor Malin touches on how social media can be a tool of activism, but should not be its primary driver of change. Looking forward to the climate movement, we must realize that Instagram pictures will never be enough. We must organize, push for policy changes, and make our voices heard. As quoted from Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, protests can be organized through social media, but nothing is real that does not end on the streets. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Operation Climate. 
Make sure to subscribe to stay updated about future episodes. For more information on who we are, what we're doing, and a full transcript of this episode, visit our website at bit.ly slash Operation Climate Podcast to learn more. I'm Richard, and see you next time.